Over the past 10 to 12 years, the United States has been experiencing a catastrophic crisis. A crisis so severe that recently the U.S. Surgeon General issued a strong and sobering warning to the American people. What is this crisis over the last decade? It's very specific. It is the mental health of American teenagers and the way that it has plummeted over the last decade. Specifically, anxiety and depression are called out. What is this crisis? It is gigantic in its proportion. The increases in the number of teens that have been diagnosed with depression or anxiety, the number of hospitalization admissions for self-harm, and the number of completed suicides have somewhere between 50 and 150 percent increased over the last 10 years by American teens. This is a gigantic increase in a short period of time, all happening by data that was collected before 2020. Meaning that before the COVID pandemic, things have probably only gotten worse. This is a crisis of depression, anxiety, and of gigantic proportions, and it is sudden. These trends are not just the continuation of trends that were happening the previous decade. The millennial generation of teenagers were not dealing with the same mental health issues that the Gen Zers have been. Historically speaking, we could say that this is a quite rare mental health data phenomenon. There's no signs of this occurring any time before 2010, and by 2015, it is pervasive. It is everywhere. So, friends, here we are, living in the midst of a rare, sudden, gigantic crisis of anxiety and depression sweeping through America, and apparently we're not the only ones. These same patterns are global. Identical studies have been done in the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. It is safe to say that whatever happened since 2010 was not uniquely something related to being an American. The words I just shared from you are summary from the testimony of Jonathan Haidt during a congregational hearing in Washington, D.C. four months ago. Jonathan Haidt goes on to argue that he believes that the sudden change from 2010 till today is related to smartphones and social media use. You and I can sit around and debate whether or not we believe Jonathan Haidt's assessment is accurate or his proposed changes to the government are good. But recently I heard these data points about the depression crisis. And I'll say, from my own anecdotal, personal, pastoral experience, it resonated with me. I've been a pastor over the last decade, and I do see a crisis amongst teens and of various ages. And so it is my earnest prayer that the preaching of Psalm 42 and 43 will be helpful, timely, My prayer is that it will help those of you that are currently struggling with depression or about to struggle with depression or everyone else who will hopefully love and care the brothers and sisters around them that are those people. As I said, this is the second of a two-part teaching on Psalm 42 and 43. So some of you weren't here last week. And I said that my goal last week was to study the psalm in its context. And there I argued that Psalm 42 and 43 are collectively one psalm that communicate a message of hope, 
And that message is this. No matter how far away God may feel to you, he does not abandon his king or any of his kingdom citizens. Now this week, I would like us to look at this psalm again and on the basis of that theological foundational truth, share three lessons that we can apply to our individual lives and to our church community in the midst of what is an ever-growing depression crisis. In other words, let's look at the small print heading just below the psalm. Psalm 42 in big black bold letters and then in all capital letters, in the original Hebrew, it reads, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. We're not going to talk much about the choir master part, but the maskil and the sons of Korah will be extremely relevant for our study today. Notice that this psalm, Psalm 42 plus 43, is a maskil. Now, what's that? It's Hebrew. If you were wondering, I don't know that word. Well, that's probably because you don't know Hebrew, and that's fine. Its meaning is debated, and for some reason, at different times, your English Standard Version and other English translations say, eh, we don't know what this means. Good luck! And so they just tell you what it sounds like in Hebrew. It's not an actual English word. So don't look it up in your English dictionary. If you do look it up throughout the Old Testament, which this word and its root is used a lot, it's pretty safe to assume it has something to do with wisdom. So you could say this is a wise song of the sons of Korah. You could say a song meant to instruct people in wisdom. And various other possibilities exist as to what specifically it might refer to, but I want to lean on that basic understanding. This is a psalm of wisdom. A psalm that you and I should read and reread and memorize and apply to our hearts very practically to learn about how to live in 2022 in the midst of a depression crisis. And so I have three lessons, hope-filled lessons from this psalm as they relate to the issue of depression. Not anything and everything that should and can be said, not only about this psalm, or even about this massive topic that is depression. But from the text, from God's word, here's my pastoral encouragements. Number one, Psalm 42 and 43 teach us that God knows and understands depression better than any of us. So you can trust this God. Put it simply, he, he knows. He understands. You can trust him. Number two, Psalm 42 and 43 teach us that even the very best Christians, the very best worshipers, the very best Israelites struggled with some sort of depression. So Christian, depressed person, you can stop beating yourself up that your depression necessarily means you are not a Christian. Say it simpler. Even the best struggle with depression. So quit beating yourself up. Number three. Psalm 42 and 43 teach us realistic responses to depression. Not quick fix, immediate cures. So, talk to God. Talk to yourself. And do both of them weekly in corporate worship. That's where we're headed. Let's unpack these three lessons from God's word. And I hope and pray 
that all of us will be wiser as a result. Number one, Psalm 42 and 43 teach us that God knows and understands depression better than we do. So you can trust him. This big idea of point one comes from the simple question, what, what's depression? How do we even define this topic? Well, if we were to look to the best of human wisdom, here in the U.S., there is a manual and a guide. And they define depression clinically. Depression, known as major depressive disorder or sometimes referred to as clinical depression, is a mood disorder. Those who suffer from this experience have persistent feelings of sadness, hopelessness, and they lose interest in activities that they once enjoyed. Aside from these emotional problems caused by depression, individuals can present physical symptoms, chronic pain, often digestive issues. And to be diagnosed with depression, these symptoms must, I'm just quoting, must be present for at least two weeks. Depression is more than and different from just sadness, because sadness is a normal emotion that everyone experiences for various reasons. And as the world defines it, this difference doesn't lie in the depth or the extent of your sadness, but rather how it compounds with negative feelings, other symptoms, how it affects your body, and the ability to just function in day-to-day life. Now, some of you might feel down in the dumps for a day or two, but you might still be able to enjoy life, your favorite shows, your favorite food, spending time with friends. But those who are depressed cannot enjoy the basic things in life. They're not interested in them. They're not pleasurable. And so the world wants to find a clearer distinction between depression and sadness. And of course, the two are related, but parsed out. And here's the last little line about the worldly definition of depression that I found. The decision as to whether or not you should diagnose someone as being depressed will depend on the judgment of a clinical therapist treating the individual based on certain diagnoses, observations. I'm going to share those in just a second under point two. How do we diagnose and determine who's depressed? But we'll pause here just with this clinical very clear delineation between sadness and depression. And then now, let's hear God's word on the issue. Verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? 
hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's just pause there. I think we're off to a good start. Depression, according to Psalm 42, 43. It is desert-like. It is dryness. But it is not stated like that. It is stated like this. As a deer pants. As a deer is dehydrated in the middle of the Middle Eastern scorching sun, so my soul has a thirst and a longing that cannot be quenched. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, and I don't know when the next time I'm going to see God and experience his presence. And depression is sadness, extreme sadness. It's tear-drinking sadness. My tears have been my food day and night. Clearly, bodily appetite seems to be gone. Kind of matches a little bit what we just heard from the worldly observations of depression. But it's described as the tears that I cry are day and night, and they have been my food, and all the day long I am saying, where is God? And other people are saying the same thing to me. Where's your God? Then verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Now this is one of the few instances where not in our translation, but other translations actually use the word depression. The word cast down means to be low. So it's another metaphor. Another word picture of being in the valley. Being down. Being low. Being in the dumps. So depression is desert-like. It's tear-drinking, constant sadness that has no hope of ending. And it is being down in a low place with inner turmoil, which that word just means loud and noisy. Have you ever experienced or felt like inside your mind is racing, you can't stop thinking about something, and it's over and over again like there's just this chaos going inside of your soul? Compare and contrast. Is there any wisdom in describing depression the way our psalm does, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, versus the clinical psychologist? And I'm not here trying to create a debate or discussion, just so you know, between the two as much as what seems to be, in your estimation, wiser, more hope-filled description of depression. To put it another way, I believe that the Bible does not ever define depression like we would define it. I think the Bible describes it. The Bible describes depression using poetry more than anything. And if it's not in poetry, it's typically in narrative of stories. You will not find a chapter in the Bible where it says, in Titus chapter 4, verse 4, Titus 4 doesn't exist, by the way. Titus 4, verse 4, depression is, and then here's a definition, like it's real matter of fact. These experiences in the Bible are only described using metaphors, poetry, or narrative. Over the last couple weeks, I was thinking, well, I want to be helped and blessed by what's been written on the topic. I read three different Christian books about the topic of depression regarding the Bible. 
And all three of those books and authors emphasize the significance of Psalm 42 and 43 in particular, but the Psalms in general. Read Psalm 88, for example, if you want a parallel Psalm where it's just describing something going on inside and you're like, I don't even know how to have words to describe the feelings I've had. Well, guess what, friends? God does not leave such sufferers alone in the darkness. He provides hope by giving you the language of fellow sufferers on the pilgrimage journey. He knows what it's like. He is not distant, far-off, abstract deity looking down and be like, that's tough. Well, try harder. He inspires psalms like Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 so that you know that there are people that are walking through a dark, deep valley and they are just reaching for words to describe the pain they feel. One of those books that I was reading, I thought it summed up this point quite well, and hopefully it'll connect the dots for you. It says, and this is me just paraphrasing and quoting at times, consider the various metaphors of depression in the Bible, being in a desert, being in a cold winter, being bruised, being in a foggy day, being in the midst of a storm, being caught in a hurricane, water rolling over wave upon wave. That's in our psalm, by the way. Waves and breakers, verse 7, deep calls to deep, the roar of your waterfalls, all the breakers of your waves have gone over me. And in that language, it's continual. It's the tense of not just in the past, but right now, I feel like I cannot get my head above the water. I am drowning in sorrow. We talk about sitting in the darkness. We talk about being faint like a panting, poor soldier, warrior, crying out. Here we have a deer in the middle of the desert. You and I need language for sorrow, and God gives it to us. And so the author says these three points, and I offer them to you. Metaphors leave room for the diversity of depression. It does not propose to cover in one comprehensive statement or definition every angle and understand every possibility or explain every detail. It does not require only one possible explanation for what's going on. The language of the Psalms and of depression in the scriptures proposes that depression is so diverse that you would be ignorant if you thought, oh, that's it and that's not it. And that settles it. Secondly, the author says, metaphors allow for better nuance, understanding the differences between person to person. Each person with experiencing depression is not suffering the exact same causes for their depression or the same feelings. So if we have a very boxed-in view of depression, we might start to think, well, that's not me, that's not you. Number three, metaphors and the language of poetry requires you and I to think and explore depth that prosaic, formulaic expressions could never do. It's a word of invitation. I liked this a lot. The Psalms give us an invitation rather than a destination. And this is crucial 
for when we're thinking about our own depression or helping those with it. Do you see the point? God knows what you're going through. And I would propose that not only because it's the holy word of God as a starting point that most all of you in this room believe that we're reading from God's word, but that even just your own personal experience will connect with the Psalms in a personal and meaningful way that will prove to itself its validity. Wow, this psalmist knows. But this psalmist is speaking on behalf of God who's trying to tell you, I know. You can trust me, and in fact, you can pray these things to me. Our God is compassionate toward sufferers who don't even have words to describe what they're feeling like and gives them words. So sufferers, search for metaphors, read the Psalms, realize that this might be a more helpful way to describe your experience. Receive the metaphors that other sufferers have used, whether in the scriptures or in good conversations with Christian friends. And please receive the graciousness of God by him filling the scriptures. And I don't just mean a few. I mean filling the scriptures with poetry for those who sorrow, experience sorrow in this life, and know that he empathetically is with you in those dark days. For the rest of you that are not suffering, your caregivers, learn to be patient and listen and appreciate metaphors. I have already said that this psalm teaches us that it is not a quick fix. It's not just memorize this Bible verse and by next week you should be good to go. Our words are valuable and in fact they will either help and communicate love, or they will be the very thing that drives people away from our church and our presence and our counsel because of our lack of listening, our lack of empathy. And so I say this to several of you that might be in this room that have never once really connected with this whole depression topic. I've never experienced that. I think those people are just kind of sad. They need to, like, get over it. If you've ever just been that way, If you're honest with yourself, yeah, I've struggled with that. I've struggled with thinking about strugglers. Like, I don't look at them very empathetically. Like, what's wrong with you? All right, so your mom died. A couple weeks of crying. You should be good, right? When you're thinking about other people, realize that God has inspired Psalm 42 and 43 to communicate to you, some people feel this way, and it's not because of sin. It's not because they've forgotten God. It's not because they don't believe in God anymore. Psalm 42 and 43 should be shouting to those of you a word of correction, a rebuke almost, that everybody should be just like you. God knows, and so he inspired these things. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Point two. Psalm 42 and 43 teach us that even the very best believers will struggle with depression. So, you can stop condemning yourself as, I must not be a good enough Christian. And basically what I'm trying to do here, instead of define what is depression, is, okay, who gets depressed? And worldly wisdom would say that there's a criteria. There's a list of symptoms. And if those symptoms have been experienced, five or more of them over the course of two weeks, then the therapist can say, ah, 
they're depressed. Those symptoms include depression most of the day and most of the week. Diminished interest in activities, work, hobbies, most of the day and most of the week. Symptom number three, significant weight loss, not eating right, gaining weight or losing weight in a rapid way, a decreased appetite. Number four, a slowing down of thoughts, the inability to really move and act in an everyday sort of way, feelings of restlessness. Number five, Fatigue, the loss of energy, as David prayed, getting out of bed is a task. Number six, feelings of worthlessness, excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Number seven, diminished ability to think and concentrate, to be decisive. And lastly, number eight, reoccurring thoughts of death, a plan to commit suicide. Is that helpful? Sure, maybe. But I ask you this question, not from a diagnosis, from a manual, from psychologists, but I ask you this question, who's depressed in our psalm? And what observations from looking at our psalm, Psalm 42, 43, might that communicate hope for you as an invitation to keep trusting, keep praying, keep worshiping? Not a diagnosis, oh, That's a destination. I'm a depressed person, period, as if that defines all of who I am because I got diagnosed by a psychologist. Our psalm is by the sons of Korah, and I mentioned last week, and as you can see by the choir master thing and the history of these sons of Korah is that they were worship leaders. To my right, we had three different musicians. Think like that, except maybe... In this context, even more important, they attended to the temple. They were sons of Levi. That means they were Levite priestly family. They took care of things that pertained to worship. Sometimes practical details, but a lot of times music. So we get a little hint that whether it's David who asked them to put this to music and David wrote it, that it's either the king of Israel or... It's some sort of worship leader. Now look down at verse 8 and 9 and notice that this person, whoever's writing this, whichever son of Korah or again maybe David himself, they say, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. This person is singing. This person believes and knows the chassid love of God from the Old Testament. The steadfast faithfulness of God is being proclaimed and affirmed. They're a believer. This description didn't come from somebody pre-conversion, prior to becoming a Christian, a follower of God, an Israelite believer. They know God. I actually think if you study this psalm and just ask this simple question, what can I learn about God from the language of this psalm? You'd be like, this guy's doctrine and theology, solid. He says that God is the living God in verse 2. He is not like the dead idols that don't speak, that don't have mouths, that don't have ears to listen. Our God lives and reigns. He's sovereign over all troubles and trials in the world. Where do I get that? Verse 7. Notice that the waves aren't just general waves. It's not 
waves from the oppressor. It's your waves, O God. He believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes in the living person of God. He believes in his chesed love. He calls God a rock. He said that God will not let the guilty go unpunished. He talks about God in 43, verse 2. You are the one in whom I take refuge. He prays to God to bring him light and truth because he knows that the God of the scriptures is the source of light and truth. He believes that this God is holy, which is why he says that I would like to dwell on your holy hill. And he knows that in the presence of this God, there is exceeding joy. The altar of God is filled with joy. It is a delight. That's good theology, isn't it? He's alive. He's a person. He hears. He knows. He loves. All of that just from Psalm 42 and 43. This guy knows God. So, if you think the answer should be, you just need to read a few more theology books. I don't know. I think our guy knows some theology. Maybe you just needed to go through another class, read systematic theologies. This person sings, this person prays, this person knows, and this person yet in all of these former discipleship transforming activities feels like God is far away. That means some of you sitting in this room might be here today or next week or sometime in the future and you're, you're believing Jesus, you're studying the Bible, you're singing songs, you're praying, and you're depressed. I'm reading Psalm 42, 43, and I'm, I'm creating a category in my mind that according to the Bible, some people can know God that well and feel that sad. I wonder if making this basic observation might have massive implications for what we should do. But that's point three. Before we move on to that, let's just realize that the one experiencing depression in the psalm is none other than a true believer. Not a false convert, not somebody that just lost their salvation. So Christian, especially those of you that are feeling the sadness now. Do not quickly assume and attach, I must not be a Christian then. That's not a logical step. I'm not necessarily trying to, from the pulpit, tell all of you that are hearing this, you are absolutely a Christian. That's what membership's about. That's what elder interviews are about. That's what covenant community's about. There's a whole lot more to answer that question, but we should not assume that just because I'm experiencing heavy depression, therefore, it's because of my lack of Christian faith. There are people throughout the history of the church that have had excellent theology, been well discipled, and have led the church in worship that have explained that in certain times, for very certain occasions, I mean different occasions, various occasions, but certain times experiencing bouts of depression. We read about that in the book of Job. We read about that regarding Elijah. We heard about that just a second ago from Jonah chapter 2. Some argue that Paul was depressed. We just read from Jesus that he was so downcast and so in turmoil within him, deep turmoil, that he was to the point of death. Don't have to call it depression, but that description sounds a lot like our description of Psalm 42 and 43. He knows sorrow, Jesus does. 
But then let's keep going. Martin Luther, one of the men who played the key role of the Protestant Reformation. Lutheran churches are named after this guy. He had severe bouts of depression and self-condemning thoughts. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most joy-filled, funny, happy pastors that's known as the best preacher in the world. Depression, a lot. Mother Teresa, John Piper. I'm just trying to name names of people that you might hear of and think, oh, I, I look up to them. I think of them as, you know, a leader in some capacity. It is very possible that you are a Christian and it's not because you sinned that you're experiencing the feelings that you're going through right now. One more look. Look at the whole psalm, do it today, do it again and again, and see if you do not conclude with me that there is no direct link to the psalmist's sin and his feelings of sadness. He feels away, maybe geographically he literally is away, but it's poetry, you never know. He talks about being from a mountain that's way on the north side, poetry metaphor, or literally he's way away from Jerusalem, don't know. And he is oppressed by enemies. Never confesses sin. Never says, oh, this is because I did this last week. Now, Psalm 51 was just preached two weeks ago. And there are clear instructions about the feelings of sorrow attached to sinning. Go back, listen to that sermon, read Psalm 51 again. The Bible addresses that too. But in this case, we have a person that there's no known clear sin that needs to be repented of. Hmm. Could you be a Christian, trying faithfully to walk and grow in your relationship with the Lord and experience deep depression and somebody tell you, well, you just need to stop sinning and then those feelings will go away? That, that, that might be an overstatement. That, that might be an assumption you might not want to make. Listen better first before you say things like that. It could be sin. Very well, some of us are experiencing these things because of sin, but not necessarily. Most importantly on this point, we need to realize that the basic gospel message says that you did not become a Christian because of your happy feelings. You did not become a Christian because of your great moral resume. You don't maintain your Christian faith because of your joy in the Lord Jesus and the extent of which that joy is being expressed day in and day out. You are and you will be and you forever will remain a Christian because of the sovereign grace of God to choose, to call, to guide you to repentance and faith and to keep you till the end. And all of that being on the basis of what God has done for you. So do not listen to trite Christians who are well-meaning that simply say, you just need to do more and then the feelings will go away. I've talked to way too many sincere, mature Christians that have done plenty and keep doing the things they're supposed to do, don't have any other sins they know to confess, they bear their soul, and they just don't feel any relief. Trust the gospel. It's better to be limping our way to heaven than be happy and whole run into hell. Jesus Christ saves the sick. He runs to the downcast and he especially loves the lowly 
So see yourself in your sad state as especially prized by the Son of God. Which brings us to point three. Psalm 42 and 43 teach us realistic responses to depression, not quick fix, immediate cures. So talk to God, talk to yourself, and do both in a covenant community. Very, very practically, talk to God with these words. This is bringing point one into point three in an action step. When God feels far away, tell him he feels far away. Read the psalm and apply your name in it. God, you feel like you, you forgot me, and I feel abandoned. You're allowed to pray that way. The way to get through the depression, even if it, it doesn't immediately break with sunshine the next day, is to walk with God. And I love when Pastor Nate preached over the summer. He's with you in your present troubles. Sometimes our troubles are present and they're still present next week and then they're present the week after and he helps us with present troubles. He'll walk you through the depression even if for whatever reason he doesn't lift it right away. And one of the simple means is to be like this psalmist and talk to him in song, talk to him in prayer. Secondly, talk to yourself. Oh, this is helpful. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones well-known pastor and medical doctor, physician for a long time, somewhat, and then became a pastor. And had a, a fabulous, fruitful ministry in London, England. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And the doctor isn't because of his PhD in theology. It's the doctor because he was a medical doctor. Preached this psalm and did so fabulously. And he has this money of a line. I have shared this probably a dozen times, I feel like. But it's worth it. And it's from this psalm. So here we go. This is what he says. The main trouble in the matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. I'm not trying to be paradoxical. No, not far from it. This is the essence of wisdom in the matter of depression. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you keep listening to thoughts from yourself instead of talking to yourself? So take those thoughts that come to you that moment you wake up in the morning. They did not originate from you, but they start talking to you. They bring back yesterday's problems, etc., etc. See, something, someone, they're talking to you. And you need to ask yourself, who's doing this talking? Well, you are. And so realize that and do what the psalmist does in Psalm 42. Instead of allowing these self-condemning thoughts, he starts talking to himself. He says, self, why are you downcast, O oh, my soul? His soul is being repressed within him. He is feeling crushed. And he stands up and he says, now, self, I need to talk to you for a minute. I need to speak to you. Friends, Lloyd-Jones says, do you know what I mean? Do you understand the difference between allowing the thoughts to just run in your head and not do anything to object them? If you do not, Lloyd-Jones says, then you have little experience in fighting spiritual depression. This is the main art of the matter. Tell yourself, preach to yourself, hope in God. You've got reasons to hope in God. Yesterday was bad. 
I feel so sad about how that went down. Oh no, I'm worthless. Nobody's going to love me. Nobody wants to be around me. Preach to yourself the truth of God's word. God loves you. God chose you. God's love for you is not dependent on your failures yesterday. God's love is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hope in God, Phil. Talk to God. Talk to yourself. Third and finally, pursue corporate worship. Do both of these things, actually not just in your own bedroom, but do them with us as a church, receiving the encouragement from the people of God. Isn't it obvious from this psalm that the longing that you and I should have, the longing of his heart is to be with God's people? What's the very thing that he's describing as this deer that thirsts and pants like in a desert? I just remember the days, the days when I would sit in worship and enjoy the holy presence of God, the exceeding joy of just bathing in his presence and feeling the warmth of his love. There will be no experience of that in your dry season if you don't ever come. Waiting for that feeling to return and then come back to church is the wrong move. Pursue God in corporate worship, and when you sit through songs that you're like, I have no idea how they're praying that way, singing that way, and having joy in Jesus, I feel like my tank is empty. You can know that the people around you, we're in this together, we'll just sing for you. You just keep your mouth shut, and you listen to people sing these things, and you pray, God, I want that. I don't have it, but I want it. Would you give it to me? And then come back next week and do it again. And then come back the week after and then do it again. And I believe at some point, one way or another, God in his grace and his mercy will restore to you the joy of your salvation. And even if your depression leads to suicide itself, the most ultimate hope is that your life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross for your sins. And where better to hear that good news than corporate worship, where we take the bread and we drink the cup and we remind ourselves of Christ's death until he comes. So come, faithfully come for your own soul's sake, but also for the times when I'm not feeling depressed, but I should come because the person next to me might and they need to hear my singing, my loud, joyful singing, and sometimes my deep pains of singing. He knows. He experienced deep turmoil within himself as he went through the Garden of Gethsemane. Realize that it gets dark sometimes and even darker before the sun comes up and a new day dawns. And this is exactly the experience that our Lord Jesus Christ had. So know that God knows because Jesus knows. And he forever remains a human that sympathizes with every single one of your temptations and weaknesses. Forever he remains one who would identify with your sorrows. He knows. So pray to him. Sing to him. And tell yourself Jesus experienced far, far worse. And he did it because of his great love for me. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we come now in the name of Jesus. And we pray with heavy, heavy hearts, knowing the reality of what has just been spoken and addressed. The pain is real. The pain is palpable at times. You can sit down with a sufferer and just feel like it's in the air. We try and use words and language to explain it, God, but, but we struggle. And so we praise you, God, for this psalm. We praise you for your holy, inspired, and errant word. We praise you that you are a God who has given us the gift of language to pray even now. And so we ask that as we come to you in prayer, we would know that you know. We ask that we would be faithful to trust you. And that we would not beat ourselves up over and over again with condemnation, but preach to ourselves the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fellow sufferer Jesus went the full depth of suffering, even the grave itself, and you did not abandon him. Help us to hold on to faith for another hour for another day. Meet us again next week in your word. And may we be wiser because of submitting ourselves to this exercise of study and preaching and meditation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.